Hi, V. How are you? Hi, Rachel. I am good. I am incredibly excited to introduce this next episode. This is episode 103 of Commonplace with Cody Rose Clevidence. Before I say who else is on this episode, would you mind reading us Cody Rose's bio? Yes. Cody Rose Clevidence is the author of Beast Feast and Flung Throne, both from Asada Press. Listen, my friend, this is the dream I dreamed last night, published last year by The Song Cave, and Ozark Triptych, also published last year by Nightboat Books, as well as several handsome chapbooks, most recently Dearth and God's Green Mirth. They live in the Arkansas Ozarks with their two dogs, The Bird and Ramses Two, and a lunatic cat named Monkey. So folks may have heard your voice on previous episodes. Certainly anyone who subscribes to the newsletter is familiar with your written voice because you have been writing the newsletters um, for the past several months. But this is your first time as solo guest host. So in the spirit of that, I would like to read your official bio. Valentine Conady is a writer, editor, and literary worker from Birmingham, Alabama, living in Brooklyn. They're a producer at Commonplace and have been working with Rachel and the team to produce a series of episodes around questions about literary labor and the creative gig economy. They founded Bomb Cyclone, an online journal of eco-poetics and mixed media art, and continue to publish genre-bending work responding to ongoing environmental crises from 2018 to 2020. They've also edited poetry for Roof Books. They previously organized community readings at Poet House, a 70,000 volume. Thank you. See, look, you're just always an editor. They previously organized community readings at Poets House, a 70,000-volume poetry library in Manhattan, before being laid off with their co-workers after collectively petitioning to form a union. All right, so I have a few questions for you, and then I also want to share, as we go along, a few things that I love so much about this conversation, uh, which has really been a delight and a salve to re-listen to, to kind of lightly edit and go back over in the past few weeks of my life. When did you record this episode roughly? I know you recorded remotely. Uh, You were in Brooklyn and Cody Rose was at their home in Arkansas. And how did you first encounter Cody Rose's work? I remember it was May 4th because it was a week before my birthday. I first encountered Cody's work at Poets House. Um, They were going to come for a reading uh, in probably the spring of 2018. Um, I could be wrong about that, but it was sometime during 2018. And me and a couple of my coworkers would, you know, home through the calendar. Um, I actually edited the calendars at Poets House. So I would read the bios and like write blurbs about each different um, author who was coming to visit. And Cody Rose stuck out. I think also I was very interested in their work when I did start reading Beast Feast first because it was a kind of approach to 
quote unquote nature poetry or eco poetics that I had never seen before. Um, that was very interested in not just the human element of eco poetics, but also like bringing the human into the animal and kind of erasing the kind of binary there. At the same time, was interested in and using these like sounds and phrases and cadences of technology and social media. And so just so aware and engaged and open on so many different levels in a way that was really exciting to me. And so I continued to um, read Cody Rose's work for the next couple of years. I've been in this um, phase, I, maybe not a phase, but like transition, which I've probably talked to you a little about, Rachel. I've been moving from writing poetry to more reading and writing prose. And listen, my friend, this is the dream I dreamed last night. It's kind of, it's an inter-genre inter work that is both poem and prose. It's all one block of text um, in prose. So in some ways it could be called a lyric essay, but even that doesn't really get to the like multifariousness of the text itself. I initially was like, Rachel, you've got to read this. And then... Um, and if I can just insert, yeah. it was a really interesting moment for me and between us. You suggested I read the book. You told me I would love it. I started reading it. I read the first few pages and was blown away. It, I found it so engaging and so pleasurable and so disturbing and so like utterly compelling. And I found myself unable to keep reading it. And one of the things that you and I have talked about um, and that I talk about pretty much constantly with my new partner is both of us love books um, and have like been in the book world our whole careers um, and our whole lives um, are having such a difficult time reading. And it's really uh, such a I don't know. I, 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 I think part of it for me has to do with, I don't want to say a, an intentional disorder, but some sort of a shift in my ability to pay attention. I think this has to do with age. I think this has to do with COVID. I think this has to do with whatever is also going on in my writing life. I think this has to do with being overly saturated by information and textual information. And so much of, listen, my friend, this is the dream I, dreamt, I dreamed last night, is about attention itself. And so I, I felt even more desire to read it and somehow even less ability to. And I think this moment when uh, we, we both sort of realized, like, wait, you do it, which is something we'd been talking about, was, was really a moment of excitement and relief for me because I really wanted to engage deeply with this book 
And this was a way that I was able to engage deeply with the book, even though I still have not yet read all of it. One other thing I'll say about that is that this morning, I just finished reading, really deeply reading a book in a way that I don't think I've read since the very, very beginning of the pandemic. And I think working on this episode with you and talking through this book and listening to you and Cody Rose talk about your love of reading and this book in particular, I think was, was part of what helped me come back to reading. So what was it like for you to do it? It's one thing to decide to do it. It's another thing to do it. Um, it was good. It's, it's a different frame of mind um, than I have brought to bear in working at Commonplace so far. And in some ways it was very challenging. I find it very difficult to read any of my published poems. In the last year or two, deleted all of my social media because I just the idea of having my words out there and unchanging can be very challenging for me because I feel my thoughts and my mind changing constantly. I mean, recording the conversation itself was just an absolute joy. Cody is a lot of fun, but editing the conversation was a lot more challenging than it is to edit you or even to edit a book because there's not really an ability to add context. It's, Mm -hmm. you can only take it away. And so that sort of subtractive editing process was a new challenge, but I think also kind of rewarding in that it, at some point I just had to stop worrying about what I had said and what I had not said, mainly what I had not said, and instead look at the conversation itself as text and as a text that was not entirely my own at that point. This is the first time that I've been in this role, you know, stepping back um, away from the host role. I felt a different kind of responsibility. Like, it's one thing if I make a fool out of myself. So the idea was for V and me to record a 20-minute conversation and then edit it down to a 15-minute introduction. But we ended up talking for about an hour, and like most commonplace conversations, we came to several considerable insights about ourselves, each other, and commonplace. We talked about my feelings about stepping out of the host role into the role of producer and editor. We talked about the extreme intimacy and responsibility of editing another person, my recent panic attacks, the anarchist thinker Mikhail Bakunin, news addiction, balancing a moral social responsibility to know what's going on in the world with the moral social responsibility of taking care of oneself. Whether when V and Cody Rose spoke about their relationships with their parents, I identified with them or with their parents. And we talked about two of our favorite lines from the episode. We weren't supposed to know this many people, let alone their thoughts. And bitch, we're coming for God too. 
I think this conversation about a conversation will be of particular interest to podcasters, editors, and people who like hearing about my anxiety. But we didn't want to distract from this thrilling conversation between Valentin and Cody Rose. So we've decided to include the hour-long version of the introduction as a patron exclusive on our Patreon site. Yeah, that adds a whole other layer to the conversation for me. I'm glad you told me that. (laughs) We should probably get to the... (laughs) I know. Okay, spoken as a true producer. Okay, so uh, for this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books. This is The Dream I Dreamed Last Night by Cody Rose Clevidence, courtesy of The Song Cave. Ozark Triptych by Cody Rose Clevidence, courtesy of Night Boat Books. The Elementary Forms of Religious Life by Emile Durkheim, courtesy of Oxford University Press. V, can you tell listeners about the patron extras? All Commonplace patrons will get access to a new unpublished poem by Cody Rose Clevidence, a recording of them reading from Kamau Brathwaite's Red Rising from Sun Poem, and a recipe for Cody's go-to breakfast sandwich and hangover cure. I will remind all the listeners that Commonplace has no ads, no institutional support, and we depend on the support of our patrons. If you would like to become a patron or if you would like to sign up to get the copy of the newsletter, go to our website, commonpodcast.com or to patreon.com slash commonplacepod. And... I don't think we really need to give too much more context. You start off the conversation by asking Cody Rose to flip randomly to a section from Listen, My Friend, This is the Dream I Dreamed Last Night. And everything else, I think, is there for your listening pleasure. One thing that's so interesting about that project, because people do ask me to excerpt it sometimes, and I always, of course, like, one wouldn't know this from the outside, but for me, every time I try to look at a single piece of it, I'm like, well, that only makes sense because, you know, 20 pages back, I said this, and I always feel like, oh, people think I'm just throwing word salad at them, which... It's true also, you know. Anyway, I'd, I'll give it a try. Yeah, I, I think it would be cool to just sort of give listeners like a, a sort of glimpse of the like massiveness of the project because like I know any excerpt would just not not be enough to really like it's it's one block of text. So, but um, yeah, just wherever wherever you jump in and for however long you feel like it. And then, you know, I do have some specific excerpts that I might ask you to read later on. Well, I don't know. I just picked, I just opened it to page 88 and I'll just start somewhere in the middle. Um, Any period? Um, Okay. <laughs> what each culture does to honor their dead who made the clothes that you wear how many early human cultures died out because they lost fire 
it just went out. There's a theory that the sensation of falling that wakes you up in a sheer panic right before you fall asleep is vestigial from when we slept in trees, but there's no way to know about something like that. No other species on earth has built spaceships. Many species of birds form migratory flocks together. Millions of birds all flying great distances together in huge herds, landing on stream banks and fields and pastures along the way. The cacophony of grackles roosting in trees and parking lots in Texas. If the power grid went down, I wouldn't know how to make electricity. Electric eels can produce shocks of 500 volts. The disputed stories of the giant catfish below the Hoover Dam. Rumors of mass graves under Tulsa. Quote, the expansion of the universe is the increase in distance between any two given gravitationally unbound parts of the observable universe with time. It is an intrinsic expansion whereby the scale of space itself changes. The universe does not expand into anything and does not require space to exist outside it. End quote. The most famous section of the cave is the Hall of the Bulls, where bulls, horses, aurochs, stags, and the only bear in the cave are depicted. The depositing of seeds or sperm ends up evolutionarily being a question of proximity, as does the evolution of implements of war. Common dandelions came to North America from Europe. Many of the species produced seeds asexually without pollination, making genetically identical clones of the parent plant. The shadows of clouds moving across the ground seen from a distance on a hill or tall building, the gas tanker explosion in Bogota, the opiate prescriptions of America, the toxic twilight of southern Iraq from burning oil. Quote, overhead surveillance is critical to fighting the Taliban. The headline reads, the project is called Scan Eagle and costs, quote, $174 million. The picture is of a man holding an airplane-shaped drone about four foot long. It looks like a scaled-up version of the balsa wood model planes my stepdad would make with me. Okay, I stopped. Cool. Yeah, I think that works really well, actually, as a as a kind of standalone excerpt. It got a little bit of everything, which is kind of what I was hoping for. It didn't say anything too explicitly, like sexual or like murderous. <laughs> no, that's that's also true. One of the things that I heard in that excerpt that was really interesting and is something that I'm very interested in sort of thinking about and talking about together in general is the idea of attention. And so you mentioned like these headlines and part of why I wanted to start with a a just kind of cold snippet is because it is, again, so massive and such a significant thing to comprehend and both requires so much attention, I think, from a reader, but also it seems like required so much attention from you just to produce it. And so I wonder if you could talk about what that process was like for you. I mean, honestly, it was like hell by the end of it. Like, I just started it one day without, I had a couple ideas of something, not much. And then, I mean, think of your phones are this like unbidden, like you open it. So that's you ostensibly giving consent. But then it's this like unbidden stream of like, mostly horribleness 
that is like unloading itself at you. And that's how most of us get our news, you know, or the radio, again, you're turning it on. So you're consenting in some sense. And then, but then it's just this endless thing. And it does, it gets these things that you didn't choose to be in your attention are in your attention, even though I think we are all like morally and socially responsible to attend to the things in the world around us, the things that are happening, you know, but still the, the way they then like claim your brain space, almost parasitic and then just trying to grapple with that. And, and for me trying to put, all the different things that were like claiming my attention, including my own life, including the books I'm reading, you know, but like, I was like, this is too much. I need to start putting it down in some sense, not even like a braid, but not quite like a pile of puke either, but like somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. there. Um, but I swear by the end of it, like, I just had, I had to stop. I felt like I was being whittled thin or like drawn out of myself all the time. It felt like it had come to sort of possess me and I, and my attention wasn't my own anymore. So yeah, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit more about how your relationship to, I guess, mass information and the attention economy kind of changed through the process of writing it? I mean, I guess I've been addicted to the news forever. At some point, because it was all feeding into this thing, it felt like more of an addiction than just a, like it started to feel pathological. And, And I do think we all kind of have that though right now where like, you know, you sort of pathologically check your phone, like, oh no, what's happened next? And one of the things about the real and also simultaneously like manufactured crisis that we're in is that like, we're in this state of like constant crisis. So you look at your phone, you're like, oh no, what's happened now? And like something bad has happened, (laughs) like always. Every day, every moment. And so we're on this like, shock and despair cycle of that which which I think is itself like addictive for our um like attentional nervous systems or something yeah yeah I don't know fuck yeah one of the things that I find fascinating about listen my friend this is the dream I dreamt last night which is a beautiful title by the way is that it sort of captures the before and after, or not really the after, but like the during of the pandemic. And there's like this kind of, I've I've been reading a lot of like geology texts and there's this thing called like a golden spike, which is the exact moment when you can see a different geological era happen in like the strata of the earth. And so it's interesting that there's almost like a golden spike in, listen, my friend, when the pandemic kind of starts and suddenly things are changing and like the way that you relate to other people changes. Um, I mean, in some ways, and maybe in some ways not, because I know, 
I know you've said in previous interviews that you don't really interact with people on a daily basis. Um, a lot of your social interaction has always, or not always, but since you moved into the Ozarks, been primarily online. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, choosing that one crisis that we're in out of all of the other crises that we're in, how that global moment of, oh, now we're in pandemic time changed the project. I guess I feel like it didn't change the project at all because the project I mean, I started it in November, so that was like before. And I remember like slowly hearing, you know, on the news, like, oh, there's been an outbreak of something. Oh, they're closing the ports in this city that I had never heard of in China. Oh, they're closing the ports in San Francisco, you know, or something. And that was starting to filter in. But the project, by the time I understood what the project was, it was pro- it was still before. And the project was just a project of recording. And so, and then it turned out to be a really bizarre year or two to be recording. But I feel like I kept true to the initial project, which was simply to like be metabolizing like everything that was happening in the world, whatever that was going to happen to be, plus all my thoughts and feelings. Like, as an amalgam in some sense, you know. It was really weird at some point, maybe a year in, I was like, I was like, oh, this project is being shaped because we're in, you know, precedented times or or unprecedented times or whatever, you know. But the world is still, you know, I mean, things are always happening. Yeah. And in some ways it feels kind of arbitrary to choose, again, that one that one shock that happened. One thing that I do want to say about like, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't experience the kind of isolation that the pandemic imposed on a lot of other people who live in cities or even towns or who have families or like jobs or any of the things that I don't have. Um, But I do also think that there is something bigger than ourselves. That's like a collective mood. And even no matter how far away I am, I felt like I was really implicated in or like washed up in what felt like a really collective mood at different points too. I mean, at some point I was like sourdough. I didn't do the Tiger King thing, but, but then there was that like outwashing of like anger and despair. This was after I was done with the project, but when like people were not getting vaccinated and like, and like everyone I knew was just, livid and and like existentially like angry and in like despair and I was angry and in despair you know it felt like it felt like these things were big movements of collective forces of of feeling um that I think anyone that has access to any sociability whether it's in person or on the internet like I think we feel these things kind of together so I'm interested in that idea of, I think you called it like collective forces of feeling and how, did you feel like through the project of just recording what you were reading and your kind of individual life that 
you tapped into something more collective? I guess I hope so. (laughs) I guess that's what we all hope to do. I mean, one thing, I mean, I do usually have visitors that I then end up getting to have conversations with and that year I didn't. And I always think of Montaigne like being a sort of miserable bastard in his like turret or wherever he worked, being like all my friends are books and really feeling like wanting to be like in conversation with my friends and also about the things I was reading, but my friends weren't there. So, so all the conversation I could have, I had to be channeling into this project which was in some sense a project of like trying to maintain connection to the world and to thoughts and to each other and and to that collective feelings you published two books and then also a chat book in the span of you know since since 2020 but I guess I'm wondering how Listen, my friends, this is The Dream I Dreamt Last Night and Ozark Triptych, Poppycock and Asphodel, Winter and A Night of Dark Trees and Behold a Man kind of relate to each other. Um, were you writing them at the same time? I had finished Ozark Triptych, God, it must be three years ago. And I think I was done with that project just about yeah, maybe all the way when I started Listen, My Friend. It just came out sooner because that's how I can kind of only focus on one project at a time. Yeah, the circumstances were just totally different. With Ozark, I was, I don't know, <laughs> I, I was having personal feelings uh, mm-hmm. and I was trying to grapple with how to deal with that. And and kind of how to get that kind of poetics out of my system so that I could go back to some sort of philosophical project. Um, and then I did. And then and then after that, I started listening to my friend. I think, of, I mean, they're completely separate in every formally content, you know, everything, I think. so. But I, I think it is also fascinating how, like, there are sort of threads that seem to connect them. Like you can, you can watch my relationships fall apart in them. I wasn't going to say that, but um, I was more thinking like, uh, there's this interesting relationship to the reader that I've noticed in both of them, which is in some ways it seems like the attention that you're paying to the world is so much both in sort of trying to capture you know that um Ralph Waldo Emerson nature the like transparent eyeball passage and like the idea of taking everything in and like filtering it through I think um there's a way in which, as a reader, it kind of felt, this is a totally other reference, and I can't believe this is coming into my mind right now, but you know that Caspar David Friedrich painting, the um, wanderer overlooking the sea? It's like a man with his back turned to the viewer 
that's in all out. the meetings right yes, now. That's yes, it is in a lot of meetings. <laughs> Eternal solitude or whatever. Yes. Um, but there's there's some element of that feeling, I think, the that you as a writer are not really focusing on the reader. It's more an experience that you are having that is kind of filtering through you and coming to us. I think that's something that I saw in both Ozark Triptych and Listen, My Friend, but also there are these other moments where it seems like you're kind of turning back toward the reader, where you suddenly say in parentheses, Google it, or um, these moments where you talk about a meme that is so much a part of the collective moment that everyone is experiencing it at the same time. And it sort of becomes a moment of kind of nodding acknowledgement of a reader. And I guess, what were you imagining in terms of like a readership and what were you hoping your readers would bring to these books and what were you hoping to give readers through these books? I'm not sure. And I will try to answer that in one minute. I'll try to have a thought in one minute about it. But one of the things that I want to say is that one of the last conversations I remember having with my dad was him just completely talking so much shit on that transparent eyeball thing (laughs) because it's this sense of, yeah, I'm a transparent eyeball or whatever, but I'm a transparent eyeball disconnected from the world. Mm -hmm. Only this objective observational sensate thing which like a we all feel but his contention was that to that to get to that kind of level of observation and sensation of pure observation one might have to be disconnected from the world and he was like that's horseshit Mm -hmm. um we're all implicated in the social fabric of the world and to deny that is to deny even your right to see anything at all, you know, and I wish I could remember, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but, but I do remember thinking a lot about that and like, and like living out here in the woods and like writing my like little pastorals or whatever, feeling like it is morally wrong to position yourself as that transparent eyeball disconnected from the world. And I, and I think probably a lot of thoughts about that, like baked in the back of my mind, like not even really necessarily like, like acknowledged in my consciousness, but something about wanting that intensity of attention, not dis connected from the world and and for it to be tied morally and on purpose what is is and was a thing that I thought about and that and is important to me and in fact one of the reasons why I didn't want to write 
fucking ozotriptic was because every time I sat down to write, I was like, ow, I'm in emotional pain, you know, or whatever. And I was like, shut up, bitch. Like, no one wants to hear about your, you, like, or, or, or however people want to feel in here, whatever. But I was like, I don't want to just be writing about like how I feel, you know? And then, and so I didn't write it for a long time. I would sit down, I would write this like emotional drivel and I'd be like, all right, fucking close the computer and do something else. Like read a book, like go plant a garden and come back when you have something to think about. <laughs> and then every time I sat down, I was just writing this and I was like, okay, you got to go through, you can't go around. And so then I just wrote it, I guess. I just sat down because I had to, I felt like I had to get it out. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not quite sure about the attention in that, except that we're all irrevocably in the world and have to feel what that feels like. But I, I don't really think about the reader, except I kind of did in Listen, My Friend, because some of that project was just really wanting to be connected to people. And and wanting to remind people that like, especially when you read books, especially if you're lonely and you read books, especially from like a long time ago or like far away, you know, um, and you're like, God, someone wrote this, someone felt this or someone thought about this and they took the time to put it in a fucking book and I'm so far away and the, and they would have never met anyone like me probably or me them except in the way that, you know, we're all people with feelings, but it, that just seems so special that I wanted to highlight that kind of connection to be like, oh my God, we're all here in our little rooms, like reading our little books and drinking our little beverages or whatever, you know, sort of together <laughs> in some sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I have so many thoughts in my head right now. Um, you you mentioned this, I think, in Waves Breaking with Avran Keating, that you've been reading books that are, like, distant from you in time and place. And it's funny, I was, I was talking to my partner about planning this conversation, um, and I was, I shared that quote with him, and he was like, wait a minute, V, did you just make up this person in your head? That sounds like something you would say, because I've been reading a lot of, um, like one of the things that I'm reading right now that is sort of resonating in my head is the pillow book by Say Shonagan, which is this Heian Japanese court lady's diary. And it is so petty and gossipy and <laughs> hilarious. There's these passages that are just lists of things that she likes or dislikes and that's it. And like, there's, there's a passage or a, a section that's a list of hateful things and the hateful things are just like when, when someone wears the wrong color for them and like things <laughs> that are so mean and funny and it's just so fascinating to like read something that's so old, thousand a thousand years old, 
and be like, oh, I know. I know exactly what she's talking about. And I have had this exact bitchy thought before. (laughs) There's a passage in the Fall of Civilizations podcast on YouTube, which is one of my favorite things that exists in the whole universe. But there's one, I think it's the Sumerians. Maybe it's the like fall. Babylonian fall I don't remember but it's some cuneiform tablet that had just been decoded and it's like mother if you really loved me you would send me four new linen shirts all the other boys have linen shirts and their fathers aren't even as blah 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 you know (laughs) but I was like wow this is we've we're all we've been stupid forever That's that's great that's exactly it um I I remember this meme that I saw and I swear I have like a somewhat intelligent question at the end of this but like um I saw this meme about Kim Kardashian having you know what it is (laughs) it was uh I don't know if you've watched ContraPoints but ContraPoints has this uh she's a trans philosopher youtuber and she has this um this episode where she talks about envy and there's this hilarious moment where she talks about relatability and how relatability is a currency in our current like day and age. And something you were just talking about reminded me of the biggest cardinal sin that leads to like canceling and um, et cetera is not being relatable. But I think the sort of long story short of this is I'm really like thrilled at the way that particularly listen, my friend kind of latches onto virality and like the meme and the kind of like rhythmic and textural elements of media consumption and applies it to a sort of moving and massive recording of time that requires so much attention and that requires so much attention of the reader. I keep talking about attention. Well, attention is the thing, right? So at like there's a way in which you can think of human minds right as like meaning making machines and the mm-hmm. the meaning makingness comes from pattern recognition i think a lot about like the first astronomers like probably before fire or whatever mm-hmm. like you have to be paying attention to like which stars keep not moving and where they come up like the first the first thing of any pattern recognition which is the first seed of any meaning making is necessarily the attention and so like one of the things and listen my friend is here's like all this shit you know blah blah. here's like every single thing that came into my brain for like a year and a half Uh, But also, as myself reading it and as anyone reading it, your brain is always making these connections, you know, and we do that whether or not they're there. We do that in Rorschach tests. We do that in um, 
plenty of thought systems that end up not really bearing out in the material scientific experimental world, you know, but are, but so it seems inevitable to me that everyone's always going to be finding the patterns in whatever you put down, but also that that's not to say that those patterns aren't there, that those, that those things can be true. And maybe more than that, both of those, the patterns that there are patterns in the world and that we make up patterns, both of those things together give us the like rich, meaningful world that we live in. And without either of them, we wouldn't really have anything, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I think we should get, we should read more. So, okay. Can you read on page 20 from my mother and stepdad are looking about halfway down the page uh, down to on page 22, still always held in the wide data of the universe. Oh, found it. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I am ready. My mother and stepdad are looking into green burial because they read an article about how cremation is bad for the environment because it releases so much carbon, but there's not a lot of states where green burial is legal. So they're worried that they might die in a state where it's not. And then I'd have to fly the body to a state where it is. And then the carbon emissions of the airplane offset the amount they'd save by the burial. And so now they are considering cremation again. They say this with an earnest air of deep worry while I'm walking them back very slowly on the shady side of the street from the bookstore that they like to go to in Florida. You don't get to choose what other people care about. My hypothesis is that humans have been making up little dances for themselves and each other since long before rationality and symbolic thought. Sometimes it feels good to have a body and other times it feels so bad to have a body. And in both cases, one is impelled to move. I read somewhere that one of the things about autism is often the lack of proprioception, the sense of one's body in space, the felt sense of the spatiality of one's body. The person being interviewed said that that's one of the impulses underlying the flailing of limbs. Movement or wind or impact provides a reassuring sense of the body as there. Sylvia Plath used to lie between her mattress and box spring, but now they make weighted blankets and sell them on Instagram. And I hope whoever needs them or would get relief from them gets to have one. Endogenous opioids in the brain are released by a number of things, but mostly by prosocial contact, gentle touches, play, etc. Baby birds and baby monkeys and baby mice separated from their parents will make distress vocalizations, which can be alleviated by administering opiates. When we select for pro-human sociality in wolves or foxes, we end up with a number of other genetic characteristics that go along with it. Floppy ears, tail wagging, color variability. The stray dogs that live in the subway systems of Moscow are growing to look and act more and more wolf-like. Genes code for antlers and dorsal fins and petals. Genes code for tendencies towards infanticide. Research into the prenatal endocrine environment yields more relevant data than the search for genes in describing tendencies for homosexuality. The neural architecture we associate with, quote, masculinity and the neural architecture we associate with, 
quote, femininity along those continuums occurs in distributions across the sexes. I get a microscope so I can look at the spores of mushrooms with my friend, but we fight a little bit about how to get it to work because I'm drunk and being pissy and I go to sleep feeling wounded and blank and wake up early and go walking along the bike path in the cold pre-dawn morning air, knowing that this is a situation from which I must remove the organism of my body. Opiates are, of course, addictive in this really depressing way where you get attenuated to them and now it is the pain of the lack of them instead of the sensation of pleasure or joy that drives seeking, the reciprocity of gift giving and the reciprocity of violence. In many non-agrarian societies, the complex gift giving structures that arise with social, political and class hierarchies tribute, taxation, tithing, reparations, military aid, housewarming gifts, baby shower gifts, wedding presents, bribes, campaign donations, keys to the city. I'm looking at pictures of the most polluted cities in the world, and one is this beautiful picture of Jodhpur, India, an array of variously blue houses in a valley seen from a hilltop. I Google, do monkeys dance? Quote, Dancing is an untutored, spontaneous response where the animal moves on the beat, matching motion to music, the article says. It shows a video of a gorilla very clearly moving rhythmically to a beat and declares that this is not, in fact, dancing, that, quote, spontaneous and untutored mean that the animal cannot have been exposed to humans dancing or to the beat before. Quote, there is no such thing as gene influence without the context of environmental interaction, Robert Sapolsky says in his lectures at Stanford, which are available for free on YouTube. Even Romulus and Remus had a damn wolf. Quote, even rats get sexually aroused by mild stressors such as moderate pain, writes Jack Panskeep in The Archaeology of Mind. The lower auditory relay networks in the ear's brain are loaded with opioid receptors. Quote, simply taking care of bodily needs did not prevent the, quote, failure to thrive syndrome that arose from the lack of maternal caregiver contact. I play Bach for the mouse that's dying of mouse poison that I put out to kill mice in my dustpan and feel absurd. They are trying to prosecute people for leaving water in the desert in Arizona for migrants, many of whom die of thirst each year and whose remains are found later. The unknown soldier and the unmarked grave, the story of a life whose ending is not known, but is still always held in the wide data of the universe. Thank you for reading that that was one of my favorite passages and I think just because it touches on like so much of what we've been talking about and is both funny and sad and like vulnerable at the same time and so it almost feels a little cheap to ask like a craft question after that but I've kept thinking while you were reading it about what you were saying about making connections and how there's like small connections and big connections and our capacity to do both is what makes us human. Um, and also what makes us able to connect to each other. And so I wonder if you could talk about the kind of, not so much the process of writing, because you have kind of talked about that and that it was a very much recording project. But when you made a connection, how did you enter that into the book? And was your editorial process also one of making connections or was it one of 
cutting things so that other connections come out more strongly? Did you move things around in the book? Were, was everything written basically linearly, chronologically? Um, I wonder if you could just like talk a little bit more about the process of not just writing, but also like making it into the book, if that makes sense. That makes sense, but my answer is going to be terribly unsatisfactory, which is that I didn't edit it. Um, I didn't, I mean, I definitely cut things that were bad and rephrased things that were phrased badly, but I didn't move things. It felt dishonest. It, It felt like I was being disingenuous with the project of going along in linear time and with the stream of information in the world and the universe and in my brain, it would have felt like I was, yeah, being disingenuous if to move things around. I did, I added one thing after that I had only read till after and I went back and forth with Alan. They were like, yeah, I put it in. And I was like, but I, but it's, you know, and they were like, no one will know. And I still, I don't feel guilty about it because it's, it's right for it to be where it. So what was it? it? I'm not telling. Um, <laughs> okay. But, but it was, yeah, I, f- I felt very much of an allegiance to, especially to my own learning things, like to go back and to say you are, to say you knew something before you knew it seemed to me to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I, but I will also say that in the writing of it, you write one thing and your brain pops to another thing and then you write that down. And it's not, it's not like you're not there making the connections about what to put down next. Like, like that's the metabolism of being a mind, you know, and and so it's not like this is just everything as it happened in the world written down. It's like, no, these are the things that happen in my brain. One thing would happen in the world and then that would trigger a train of thought in my brain. And then that would, and then when I was reading the next section of the book and then something would pop out from that, that made sense. And so then that would, I'd be like, oh, I got to write that down. But yeah, it, but, but for me, it was that the pattern making and the repetition things were happening in real time in my mind as I was writing or as I was going through my world, thinking of things to, to pull in as threads. I hope that's honest. Yeah, that all of that makes sense. Um, It's interesting that you talk about honesty and having sort of inserted something after the fact, because Douglas Kearney was recently on Commonplace and I edited that episode like a thousand times. I could probably just like recite it back to you. But um, one thing that he said was that in writing, it was about his Bagley Wright lectures on poetry. And one thing that he said was that he also didn't want to, like he, he threw out a whole set of lectures because they were things that he had learned recently that couldn't have influenced his poetry in the past. And wow, cool. 
And I think that's awesome. Um, it's, and you know, it's obviously like one of the other things he says is that he doesn't think like honesty should be the watchword of everyone's poetics, but I think that there's something very like radically, it's very much like a level of commitment to your own mind and your own pattern making capacity that I think is sort of what you both are kind of talking about here. Well, I want to second, I want to agree with him that I don't think that honesty needs to be any particular valued over anything else. But that with it, but that probably everyone has to feel a sense of honesty to whatever their project is right then. Yes. Um, I remember telling my students, like, do you, do you want to lie in a poem or not? Like, that's a choice you get to make. And I was like, sometimes I lie in a poem, sometimes I don't. Let, let myself, and sometimes I extra let myself, I make myself. But in either case, these are the choices that we each make with each kind of poetic project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I try to write with a lot of volume, whether I'm on a computer or whether I'm writing by hand, my hands get tired and I'm just like marveling at how, how you recorded so much. Um, and I guess like, there's this arthritis cream. Oh, Okay. Now we're getting the good stuff. <laughs> um, when you're older, you'll be able to get this arthritis cream for your wrists and fingers. Okay, good to know. Maybe maybe then I will write a tome. But um, I guess I, what I'm wondering is like, did you find yourself struggling against a limit of what your body could handle in recording this and maybe also the amount of information that your mind could handle and what did that feel like and did you just have to accept that that was part of the process or did you try to fight past it I mean did you feel like you were losing things that you were thinking or that you were experiencing because you just physically could not get it down or mentally could not hold it in your brain yes I definitely felt like that attention attention is I read something somewhere and it was about maps and it was like the important thing about maps is it doesn't have all the information it has only specific information because if it had all the information, it's like that um, Carl Sagan quote that like, if we wanted to study the universe, we would have to have a full, we would have to be able to make a full scale model of it. Um, But that like the salient point of maps is that not everything is in it so that you can see the information that you need to see. And one problem that I think we're all feeling right now actually is like with so much information one of my favorite memes is someone said something horrible about it's like a joke about hot dogs I don't know and someone's like we we weren't supposed to know this many people let alone their thoughts you know yeah and we're all we're in this information glut I always think about and it has a lot to do with time too like if it used to take six weeks when some guy on a horse to get you your email for right your email. 
get you your mail from your lover or whatever. And so there was a set, and now it's this instantaneous thing. There's a way in which that time collapse, the durational time collapse is is also making everything happen so much so fast and we're not i mean i think the human mind is really plastic and like amazingly adaptable and also i think we're all feeling like oh my god we wasn't supposed to know this to many people let alone their thoughts you know like we we wouldn't have even known that there was a war in russia for another two months like yeah if this was 200 years ago I don't know when electricity, I don't know anything, but um, I forgot the question. <laughs> I did too. Okay. Um, it was something about attentional fatigue mm-hmm. and also the like feeling the, like obsessed. physical and mental limits and feeling obsessed. Like, like when you do the kind of drugs that make you see a lot of connections it but that becomes sort of pathological and i think i kind of did a similar thing to myself just by getting too attentional and i did really drain drain myself by the end of it i mean i, I think we have like a moral social obligation to like be a per- active participant in the world and an active witness and to bear witness to the world around us and i also think we also need to take a little bit better care of ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was fucking so glad when that book was done. My friend Sarah wrote me and she was something else, something else horrible had happened. And she was like, I wish you were writing a sequel. And I was like, bitch, no way. Like, let me have a break. A breather. And I, you know, everyone also who gets to, get a breather in this world is its own levels of complexity so um something you said reminded me about another question i wanted to ask that sort of shifts us over to ozark triptych you mentioned you mentioned drugs um and i'm not going to ask you too much about drugs because we just don't need to talk about that but you talked about drugs as like a way to achieve like a certain kind of mind um, and that you have kind of pushed yourself into a certain kind of mind through your writing in a way similar to people who use drugs to make connections. And that got me thinking about altered states of consciousness more broadly and spirituality which is also something that you have talked about a little bit in uh, previous interviews. Yeah, you've talked about how, I think, especially with Ozark Triptych, you were finding this, like, these spiritual ideas and words and, like, phrases and kind of cadences just, like, happening in your work. And how that was kind of frustrating for you as an atheist. Um, And I wonder if your feelings on that have changed or if you feel like that has been like put past because the book is done or just, you know, let's open this can of worms. 
That's really funny that that, I mean, who knows what I said? I said all sorts of crazy shit, but, but it's funny that you interpreted like that because I mean, when I first started writing the projects that would become Ozark, especially a night of dark trees, like I was listening to revelations on repeat. I let the more religious words come in somewhat against my will, but the sensations were things I was studying on purpose. Mm-hmm. The cadence was something I was studying on purpose. And also, I mean, I had this idea like a couple years ago where I was just like, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because that's what I think. But like the, I saw some super Christians being like, we need to steal the rainbow back from the gays. Like, <laughs> They don't own the rainbow. Like God owns the rainbow. And in my head, I was like, bitch, we're coming for God too. Like you don't get that. Like you don't get divinity, the entire sensation of the divine. Like, are you kidding? Like you don't even have to believe in any of that dumb shit to, to feel it. You know, like that's that all people get that, especially, you know, depressed queers <laughs> yeah so yeah this was maybe another point where like I I feel like our lives might be intersecting a little bit because um you know I I grew up Catholic in Birmingham Alabama and Birmingham is not a very Catholic place but Alabama in general is a very Christian place and you know, I wasn't even raised in like a hyper Christian household, but it was just sort of in the air there. Um, and because of that, I felt like so some of my earliest memories are of like rejecting God and spirituality. And um, my partner has recently started going to Quaker meetings and become like very active in Quakerism. And I have not really gone along with him, but I have been um, sort of diving into a lot of research into like neo-paganisms, which I actually started out, it was researching like ancient paganism, you know, before it was paganism, when it was just spirituality. I'm so interested in like, the ways that Ozark Triptych, particularly in Night of Dark Dark Trees, especially, and Winter, and and to an extent Poppycock and Asphodel, you, it almost sounds like spells. It almost sounds sounds like um, incantations and like invocations of higher power. And I guess, I don't know what the question is here. Maybe I should just suggest you read something because that's my, I think my line of thought ends there, unfortunately. Wait, um, but I want to know what, when you say your some of your earliest memories are like rejecting like God or Christianity or whatever, like what, what are, what's the substance of those memories? Um, 
so so I guess the one that that comes to mind is like whenever ever since I was a kid I used to like really love watching my mom get ready for work in the morning just sitting on her bed talking to her while she's like putting on her makeup um it's still something I do whenever I'm in Alabama and um it's it also when when my family was regularly going to church that was also something I would do but I think I was so um sort of confused by this imperative to believe in God that um I was like well why are we going to church and my mom or my dad would be like oh well because I don't even remember their exact answer but like something about God and like religion and it's like it's what we do because we believe in God and I was like well how do you know and what do you mean and no matter so I guess my memory is just like of watching my mom get ready for church and being like well why do we have to do this and what does this mean to you because I don't have any sense of what it means to me which is also sort of a tangent kind of how I feel about gender Totally. And yeah, does does that answer your question? It does. I was just remembering my memory is the same, but the opposite, which is really wanting. I, someone must have given me like a book of the Psalms for kids or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember like really we didn't pray or anything. I had to go to church with the neighbors. They think it was to get me out of the house on Sundays. But I remember like, like closing myself in my closet and wanting to pray and like doing everything I knew, you know, I must've been eight or something. Like I didn't know anything, but what I do remember was how hollow and empty it felt while also feeling the earnestness of how much I wanted not only to believe, but for there to be something out there that, that to connect to or to feel connected to and not feeling it. And my, I mean, it, so it was never even a break from the church. It was just the breaking in me of this idea that like, you could, you could do something and get that connection out of it, you know? Um, and I remember later when I was like 13 or whatever, my parents drove me somewhere in Connecticut to go to some fucking Maypole Beltane thing. And I had a lot of fun and I felt a sort of collective euphoria, but ultimately I felt like this was a sham and I felt really depressed about that. I did. I'm not sure if I felt like there was something broken in me. I think, I think I was pretty good at thinking that was something broken with the universe, but that's a sensation that I continue to return to in my life of like, I think like as humans, we really want that kind of sensation of meaningfulness and also that are these big feelings that we have that they're like, worth something in the like wider stream of things or that they mean something or we could where we could do something just right magically and like get something like that the, that the universe mm-hmm. might be in some sort of copacetic relationship with us 
even though I don't think it is in any way. But but the feeling of wanting that seems to be a really important and interesting thing for me, especially like right now. It's something I'm thinking about a lot. Yeah, that's that's why that's why I think that atheists get to have spirituality because I think those feelings are for everyone. Yeah. And I think I that's that's kind of what I'm experiencing now is this I think the only way I can get past my sense of so a lot of people believe in science as a religion like as if it's a religion and like are very like militantly like science 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 I am fascinated by science and ultimately think that it's just another ideology and sometimes I'm disappointed that I have this response to any kind of faith that is kind of poisoned by the rational, if that makes sense, and poisoned by like needing some sort of evidence and needing some sort of like, how does this connect to reality? Because what is reality? The only way that I'm able to get past that, like, I need there to be some practical relationship to lived reality is through a kind of, like, nature worship and, like, nature earth-based religions, which... I'm only barely scratching the surface of, and and at this point it is still very much like I am just reading and reading and like trying to understand how people go from that point of like, I want to believe this to belief. And to some extent, I think it isn't even about belief. It's about like practice, practice without belief. And I think, um, that's that's part of why I'm really interested in what you what you've just said about like atheists having a kind of spirituality or having a spiritual need. One thing that Durkheim says in his elementary forms of religious life, and and while I agree with almost a lot of the things that he says, also I think he's not speaking to that like singular need because he's often talking about religion as a social moral belonging and that you like outsource the imperative in in a way because it's abstracted that everyone can feel like they are belonging to a social moral universe and i think that people do that and so for me i don't try too much away from the I kind of like the religion of science, but only in the sense that to have a sense of the religious as a social community where people are investigating and in awe of the verifiable world without stripping a sense of magic from that. Mm-hmm. Um but but getting 
getting that sort of social moral thing, but having it all be something like one of the things about like earth-based religions, right? We all live here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like whether or not you read this religious text or that religious text, that's neither here nor there, but in, in any case, we're all on earth. So so there's a wider amount of possibility for shared. And one thing that I like, one thing that I hate about science, of course, is the like classism who has access to these kinds of methodologies and instruments and the actual stuff of it. But the other thing is the idea that like anyone does the same, any, it's egalitarian in the sense that like anyone who does the same experiment either gets the same results or not. And both of those are part of the conversation that belongs to everyone or should belong yeah. to everyone. And that's what I like about that. Because because anyone can say, well, in my religion, this is right. And this one else, my religion, this is right. And there's no point of shared reality there. But like the earth, the real world, the world that we're in, like has has this wonderful sense of sharedness Exactly. And like, I think science and some forms of spiritual practice that are not necessarily belief based really like use the earth as a point of connection for other people, which is what I'm really trying to learn how to do from reading pagan texts but i would love there's i would love for you to read a um a piece of i think it's from winter i don't even know if i have that book oh, I do. it is page 102 um of the ugliest flowers um of the ugliest flowers, I say this. It's a shit world, my petunia stuck in an obscene gesture of delight. You get to keep what is inside of you in some sense, if you can hold it here before it changes into something else. Though at some point we all have to reconcile with the real, the angels at their nest, polyhedrons that do or do not exist, being an organism with needs and desires and the capacity for excruciating pain. I call the flowers ugly, but it is something in my heart. Quote, this, after all, is why we do most of what we do, to control what our senses will encounter, to become particulate, to go from shut up bird to shut up yellow throated warbler, take me home night hawk in the high hard dusk particulate, in the lilac of my eyes where I have placed a cold hard stone, how to transcend all the things is a question of the real, how to hold the ringing inside you a question of springtime, how to impel the sensory organism of your body towards an imagined joy is a question that hovers between biochemistry and the void, JK, it is a question of desire and nailing a certain trajectory. Is it the need of the bark that calls up the sap? Do the blades of grass quivering in cold darkness elicit dew? I think the world evolved organisms to feel it, to crawl across its surface, impelled or repelled by the feeling of it, to hold it inside of them, which we do. That line, I think the world evolved organisms to feel it, like punched me in the heart. <laughs> you know, we, we've been talking about like, belief and science 
versus, but not necessarily versus, but kind of in conversation with faith and like science as faith and faith as science. And I think all of that sort of coalesces in the idea of practice. And I guess in some ways writing, I mean, obviously writing is a practice, is is writing in some way also a practice of faith and faith that anyone cares well that's that's definitely a real real question the big question um but do you have any like rituals broadly construed in your life that can be writing related or not writing related that make you feel I guess better no okay well it's sweeping I guess I don't um my sister said something to me recently that was like well of course the meaning of life is like maintaining strong relationships and connections Mm -hmm. in the you know, when, when people say, especially when people say, of course, this thing is this, it just made it very apparent to me that that wasn't what I believed, but that, of course, mm-hmm. was what she would believe. She's she's wonderful. She's really empathetic. Um, she's really smart. She's really kind and thoughtful and sees a lot of things. She's a novelist, and it really comes out in, in the way she thinks about people. And I was like, oh, of course, that's what you fucking think. But mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, what do I think? And the thing that popped into my head was like, the thing that's important is tending to your world. And she was like, I said that to her. And she was like, that's what I mean. Tending to your social connections, your world. And I was like, no, I like literally mean sweeping. For me, I've always felt, or for many years, felt this you know, sort of entropy closing in Mm -hmm. and and you have to sort of constantly be putting things in order to hold this like chasm of entropy, like at the edges of Mm -hmm. life. I also, I think I'm a person who has like, this is very unscientific and I don't really believe it, but like in some sense, like a higher entropic field, like everything in my life is like piles of trash and broken. And like one time I found my favorite book in the driveway and I'd been running over it for a month. Like, you know, like I don't, I don't know how, but, um, but I do, I do think that there are really sweet rituals that we all have. I read some tweet that was like, you know, saying a small prayer to the, god of the ritual of my coffee of my morning coffee or something i don't know it's something about like just that we all have our like even if you don't consider it ritual your routines are these sort of like gentle and sweet things that you do in the world um and that that but no, I don't, I don't do anything. I don't have a practice. Sometimes I, I went to Quaker meeting when I was little um, at summer camp, which was like mm-hmm. probably the times that I felt the most peaceful and the most cared for and the most like socially 
connected of my child life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think about like, what if I tried taking up that kind of practice? But there's so much to do. Mm -hmm. And my friends are like, you should meditate. You're so fucking depressed. And I'm like, well, I I should. (laughs) But but I'm not. (laughs) Like, um, yeah. But I, I, you know, if the moon's out, I'm like, okay, you have to go smoke a cigarette and look at the moon before bed. Or I try to give myself little tasks that I know will make me feel connected to something that's not just my little spinning brain, you know? Yeah. So I think um, certainly in Listen, My Friends, which I think has like a, closer like closer relationship to like diary and journaling than Ozark Triptych but but like I see a little little moments of that of not necessarily ritual but like a moment of recorded connection Mm -hmm. where the connection is like achieved and like embarked upon intentionally and achieved um in 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 your work you mentioned your sister your sister is a novelist I think you mentioned in the book or maybe it was in one of the books or one of your interviews that your dad was an archaeologist anthropologist anthropologist in listen my friend you use your family's words and like what they say to you is often a jumping off point for connections and for taking an idea and like building upon it. And I guess I'm wondering how through recording these small moments with your family, their kind of ideas shaped yours in the book and also whether or not that changed your relationship to your family while writing it well part of that is just I'm really grateful to have such smart people in my family um and I definitely I don't know what another I mean I said this before about conversations with friends but a lot of it was just like missing having conversations with my dad um and I mean he was for a long time he was like a staunch Marxist but he was always like or and he was always really interested in science and especially like humans and like human emotions and um he was really interested in like primate social forms and like how you know um and his parents were christian scientists so he wasn't allowed to learn any of that like mm-hmm. no sexuality no evolution no nothing and he he was the bad kid of the family or whatever mm-hmm. um, and so he went sort of hardcore the other direction but definitely a lot of my intellectual mind I think was shaped through continuously like even when I was really little like talking to him about like philosophical or sociological 
questions or him telling me he loved people so much mm-hmm. and he loved all the ways that humans are fucking cuckoo bananas, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely a lot of listen, my friend was me having all these questions about like human humans, like, like what's up with our violence? Like what's up with violence and sexuality? What's up with gender and sexuality? What's up with gender and the social world? You know, all of these things that I think he would have had a lot of insights into, but he was dead. I had to be like, and a lot of it was, I was reading like his old books, like that I got from his house Mm -hmm. and trying to imagine like what, what those conversations would have gotten to be like, you know? Yeah. Um, and definitely he had a, he was working on a really long ass book. His friend said he was done with it in the eighties and he died still working on it. He had gotten this big idea and decided to rewrite the whole thing, like right when it was done or whatever. Um, and, but he really had a practice every day. He would, he would work, he would wake up, and he would work until about two or three. And then he'd take himself on his little walk um, with his like stupid big parka and his little toque on top of his head, like a wingnut. Um, and I do, I don't have a good practice of writing, but in my head is always Toni Morrison being like pen to paper every day. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll open my computer for five minutes. I do feel a sort of sense of legacy of like trying to continue thinking and working on the same thought, the same kind of thoughts and like legacy of, of thinking and thoughts um, and like trying to carry that forward in my own practice in as much as I can. So it's like you're given these seeds of thoughts and beings and then you know, you sort of water them and trellis them and see where they go. Um, Yeah. Even though they were given to you against your will by someone else. (laughs) Every time I meet someone who talks about like, let me, let me pull back. Every time I meet a leftist who talks about their complicated relationship with their liberal family members, I am so taken aback because I outside of like my immediate generation in my family it they're all conservative (laughs) and so it's it's so I have this like sense of this feeling of tenderness I think toward other people's toward the kinds of um, conversations that I think people are able to have with their family that sometimes I haven't been able to have. And some of them I very much have, you know, like my, my dad came out when I was 12, 13 and has become much more liberal. And my mother does a very good job for a conservative Southern woman at meeting me where I am and knowing the right questions to ask, even if she doesn't have any of the answers. But I I think it's so beautiful and complicated and 
just like the idea of like carrying on a legacy that wasn't necessarily something you chose, um, but is something that was just given to you and you just had to do something with it. And and we all get to choose. Like I remember when I got out of rehab and I didn't. I must have been almost eighteen, and I had I did I didn't have a relationship with my sisters at all. And my sister had just had a baby, and I didn't I didn't know them. I hadn't known them since I was ten or something. Mm-hmm. I remember making a conscious choice, which is such a Yankee ass fucking thing to like. I consciously chose to be a part of my family, but that's what it felt like. You know, I was like, I want, I want to be a good family member, good sibling. I want to be a good aunt. Um, I don't know how to do those things, but I, and I I think, I mean, of course that's the same with like everything that we inherit from like traumas to ideas to like beautiful ways of being, like we all get to make choices with what we're given but definitely with my dad, especially because he died so young, it feels like an imperative to carry on that like legacy of of like rigorous thought and also like interested wonder. Mm-hmm. That something. I mean, he was kind of bipolar like me. We were really the same in a lot of ways. And so that, so it almost feels like that was one of his answers and I, and I'm hoping to hold on to it and to cultivate it as one of mine. Yeah. So. Other, I guess, big questions, but you, you sort of were talking about this a a minute ago and I want to circle back to it. You were talking about gender and sexuality and how humans do gender and sexuality. And one thing that I kept coming, kept noticing in Listen, My Friend. I mean, I think you put it there on purpose, but I also wasn't sure if I was like bringing my own gender <laughs> feelings to the table, which I guess I always am. I noticed so many threads of like animal gender and sexuality, not directly comparing it to human gender and sexuality, but it kind of being there as this like, untapped model that just refutes so much of what we're given of gender and sexuality and things about gynandromorphism, things about like the fact that the like phenotypic difference between like male and female humans is very small compared to many, many animals I, I don't even know what the question is here, but I guess I'm wondering if you could talk about what reading and learning about animal gender and sexuality and social structures, what it resonates with in your own life, if it does, and how you how it sort of may or may not help you think about your own life well okay the first thing that I think and I think this is true in any field of research is that everything is like weirder and more multiplicitous and more wonderful 
and more bizarre, anything you look at widens out into this like completely bizarre multiverse of weird of weird structures. I mean, it's not just a mishmash out there, you know, like there's reasons for different things, but, but looking, I mean, starting, I read this book, Kinship and Gender, that was about the ways it was anthropology and it's about like different societies and the construction of how they think about kinship structure, but through the eyes of gender and gender power dynamics. And it, and it's all these different human cultures that are all so different in the ways that they think about that, which then just immediately you you look back at your own and you're like, it doesn't have to be this way or anyway. These are all just made up structures. And that feels really freeing. And then also in that book, um, sort of hands down my favorite book that I've read in a long time is called The Archaeology of Mind. The guy who wrote it is really famous for his experiments tickling mice. I think you quoted that in one of the passages that you've read. Yeah. Hanskeep. Unfortunately, he is dead. But... um, (laughs) But there's a section in it on sexuality. So so that book is about the emotional underpinnings of rationality and also social, sort of everything we take for granted about like how social, humans as social organisms work. And it's really rooted in animal science and neuroscience and like these totally bizarre clinical tests that they do. But one of the things that was wonderful reading the sexuality book was about all these different, and it was in that section, neural architecture and how that develops at a different point in the womb than like genitalia or anything. And one of the things in that book was, cause like, Hey, I'm, I always, I always believe people when they say, I feel this way, or I feel that way. Like, of course, but one of the good things about that book was I was like, not only do I believe people because I love people and I want to see them happy and shine, but also there's reasons, there's actual sciencey reasons why people feel these ways, even though we've been fed this line that like, this is how it is. And this is how it is. It's never been, there's no how it is. But there is a how it is, and the how it is is way more complicated. And that felt to me like providing proof that helped make sense of the ways in which people feel, which isn't to deny anyone the way they feel, but it's to further like bolster why you get to feel so many different ways. And that seemed cool and also have you read that book biological or seen it biological exuberance it's this like massive tome documenting homosexual and like self-sexual relations in different animal populations there's like really graphic drawings of like manatees jerking off and like dolphin gay dolphins like do it and the blowholes and it's just like whoa yeah it's like a huge and he's the guy who wrote it's gay and railing against this idea that like nature is one way. And he's like, Mm -hmm. 
look in nature and and try to tell me that you know I definitely have to add that to my list um it's a good coffee table book (laughs) yeah it's graphic you know that would not be the first graphic coffee table book that I have very good um so what's something I've been doing uh basically since I started reading like sciencey books um but maybe I started it like back in college but I have been very diligent about it since I started reading sciencey books is like reading through the like bibliography of every book and just like voraciously adding things to goodreads and so that's partially like I I had that relationship with listen my friend because you do talk about so many texts and I was just like damn it adding to my goodreads as as I was going through and so like you know I know interviewers always ask what books were important to you and we've been talking about that but I guess I am also very personally interested in the books that you have been personally interested in because it seems like we have so much overlap in these interests and so and you talked a little bit about this with Avrin on waves breaking but I want to hear about your like reading practice and like how you decide what to read and if you want to just like say books I am happy to hear them and oh I wish I had any read them at some point I'm in I'm in a um I'm in like a philosophical rut I'm reading the wealth of nations which I don't recommend but I'm trying to understand the economy since the beginning of economies which is really boring <laughs> so don't do that <laughs> but no I'm in a, I'm I'm currently in a rut I'm reading Rumi right now I think one thing that I'm doing right now is reading everything that I sort of culturally like thought I already knew I've never read Rumi before but like we all get the you know, and the, and it's been marketed to us as this sort of these sort of hallmarky whatevers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I keep going back to things that are older and and being like, oh, what's what's really what is really up with that? And then of course it's fucking bizarre, which is great. But no, I'm not I'm not reading anything. I'm reading a wonderful book called The Joy of Man's Desiring, and it's fiction by that French guy Jean Giono or whatever and it's lovely but and sad and sort of about like cultivating like wonder and wildness like in your small corner of the universe Mm -hmm. which is feeling really relevant to me emotionally but no I got nothing yeah so do you read with projects in mind or do you just read what you feel is like personally relevant to you in that moment and like what you want to learn and then a project comes out of it when I have a poetic project I will select a stack of books that I want to learn from Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I think like when I was first writing Ozark, it was like HD and Robin Blazer. More recently, I was like on a deep like Walcott kick about and that and that's a question right about how to sort of seamlessly integrate the personal and the philosophical and the locate and the personal location in space in a way that feels both very present and also not like cloyingly like me 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 you know which is something I've I've been recently more interested in, but yeah, I'll, I'll pull out a stack of books trying to teach myself something either in terms of prosody or in terms of the way the line turns like with HD Mm -hmm. or or Walcott too. Walcott, what I was really studying with Walcott was fucking rhymes. That bitch just rhymes and you don't even know you're like why is this so good and you go back and you fucking a b c a d a b b d and you're like shit you have this complicated rhyme scheme in there that no one even would notice because the lines aren't in stopped you know Mm -hmm. and they're not trite and it's like this secret structural underpinning that makes it all sort of hang together sonically and also emotively but it's but he's not landing it hard on their heads. Like you, you wouldn't notice until you notice. And then you're like, holy, you feel like someone played a magic trick on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something I was, Stevens is like that too. That was something that I was really interested in. Yeah. And then there's masters like Cameron Brathwaite, whose work is so expansive and so technically astonishing and I feel like I'm waiting till I learn enough to even attempt to learn from him mm-hmm. um, and I do have a couple books on my shelf where I'm like oh you're not ready yet you're ready to enjoy it but you're not ready to study it yet you know yeah it's interesting you just all of the books you just listed are poetry but a lot of the other books that you've talked about have been like prose or like you mentioned the fiction book. You also mentioned like archaeology of mind and the wealth of nations. And I guess I'm wondering if you read poetry for projects and a kind of like practical, how do I do this thing? I've recently learned that not a lot of poets actually have a dedicated like reading practice outside of poetry which is kind of disappointing to me and I'm really interested in like and maybe I'm making a big generalization actually maybe that's not true but um maybe it is I think to an extent it is partially true what motivates you to read things beyond poetry Oh if my God. Why do I read poetry? God. Um, <laughs> it's hands down the most boring thing that I read. No, I don't understand. I don't understand people that don't read. The world is so full of interesting things. It's like literally one of the only good things about the world. Like it, it sucks here. 
<laughs> so I don't like, why wouldn't you? I don't read a lot of fiction because it makes me too. Fiction is always like, I'm feeling all these horrible ways for these characters that aren't even real. Like, why did you do that to me? Mm-hmm. Some people like that. Like some people listen to sad music. I don't No, be, I think there's a religion to being interested in anything. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a nerd for everything. And if you study that thing, you'll find a hundred more nerds for that thing. And they've all got something interesting to say about it. Mm-hmm. Being locked in your own mind is like the most boring shit I can think of. Unless, unless you're like, mind is someone who gets to study something interesting, which I don't. So I get to read other people's minds, you know? Yeah. So this has been like a really incredible conversation and I have so much reading to do <laughs> and like thinking and I'm uh, very grateful for both the opportunity to like get to know you a little better because um, you know I don't know if you remember meeting me at Poet's House totally I do of course okay that was a very fun conversation. I think we talked about like astrology. I remember the way that you talked about it. You were like, oh, I don't tell people what my sign is. And um, it was it was just like a very fun conversation. And I'm glad to get to talk to you more, but also glad to have been able to like digest your work in conversation with you and think in conversation with you so thank you for sitting with me thank you for sitting with me You've been listening to episode 103 of Commonplace with Valentine Conady and Cody Rose Clevidence. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Zucker, Valentine Conady, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Cody Rose Clevidence, The Song Cave, Nightboat Books, and Oxford University Press, and to all the publishers and presses that keep us and our Commonplace listeners in fabulous books. Thank you to our patrons for supporting Commonplace. And thank you to all of our listeners. You are listening to music composed, recorded, and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin. Thank you for listening.